All right. Good evening, everybody. This is Alex Ramirez. Today is Thursday, February 6th. Welcome to the Players' Lounge presented today by Pro10 International. Riding shotgun with me this evening is uh, the CEO of MLJ Group, Sandy Middleman. Sandy, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Alex. Thanks for having me on again. Absolutely, absolutely. So we got a great show for you tonight. Still trying to get a hold of uh, our special guest for us tonight, Johan Creek. Trying to get him on the line here in a few minutes. In the meantime, I want to remind everybody that you can reach us on the phone at 347-637-1197. That's 347-637-1197. If you go to Pro10Radio.com, uh, all the information is on there how you can reach us. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at Pro10Radio and on Facebook.com slash Pro10Radio. So a lot of good stuff happening. We've got a good show lined up, like I said, trying to get a hold of Johan Creek. Uh, joining us also today is Pete Zebron. Pete, do we have you on? I am here, Alex. Good evening. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for joining us. So, guys, let's just kind of dive into the news real quick this past week with uh, some interesting stories. Pete, why don't you lead us off and see what we can get going here? Well, uh, one of the biggest stories, obviously, uh, continuing on from Melbourne is uh, Rafael Nadal, and um, he was slated to play in Buenos Aires next week and has withdrawn from that tournament, unfortunately. Uh, a report was posted online yesterday that uh, his back is still not 100%, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm feeling that that's possibility of, uh, poss- of maybe playing a third and fourth set at the Australian Open final against Stan Wawrinka. Rafa really looked like he thought about seriously uh, pulling ripcord and uh, retiring from that match deep in the second set or at the conclusion of the second set. Of course, he won the third set and played another set, the fourth against Stan, before losing. But, um, again, that was posted online that it was a back injury, that his back was not 100%. Uh, but today it's come out that uh, he has withdrawn from Buenos Aires due to a stomach virus. So uh, I'm really not sure what's going on, but uh, the one thing that we do know is Rafael Nadal will not play next week in Buenos Aires as scheduled. Yeah, the, Pete, that's, um, yeah, it was an interesting thing that kind of popped up online. I saw that as well, that he uh, was pulling out and uh, basing it on a, a virus he's gotten. Obviously, he apologized to the tournament and all the, you know, all the fans. And, um, I, you know, I agree. I mean, it's hard to tell whether or not he, um, you know, it's really kind of uh, on the back end of the, the, the back issue in Melbourne and maybe playing a couple extra sets possibly he shouldn't have. Um, but, yeah, we'll have to see in the upcoming uh, next couple of weeks uh, what he does and whether it's, you know, a virus, a back, um, how long it is. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a shame. And it's a shame, obviously, most importantly, it's a shame for, for enough to play, but for the, for the tournament and the spectators, obviously, because tournament like Buenos Aires, I'm sure you'd agree, is you know kind of relying big time on his presence. Uh, yes, I, I talked to him. Uh, well, in the interview room last year in Cincinnati, uh, I asked him uh, about uh, you know the fact that uh, there's some important events coming up in South America, namely obviously the World Cup in soccer, but also the Olympics, and the fact that he did make his comeback uh, last year in 2013 in in South America. I believe he had only played there one other time. And uh, his quote uh, back to that question was, uh, it was a very, very important and positive three tournaments that I played in Latin America. I really enjoyed everyone, and the crowd was just amazing. It's a very 
important tournament for me for the rest of the season. He can he goes on to say Latin America is a is a place that is becoming very very important. The health the economy is healthy and they're promoting a lot of very important sporting events there in the next few years. It's great news for these countries and great news for the world of sport because of the crowd and the passion for the sport in that, those countries are so huge. And he planned to be back there, obviously, uh, this year, uh, slated to go to Buenos Aires. And uh, nice to see him going back. Uh, obviously, he had great success there last year in, in his comeback after being on the shelf for a while. But, uh, yeah, very unfortunate for um, – for the South American tennis fans who, uh, when Federer went there for those exhibitions, he was treated like royalty, as he should be. Uh, those were exos. Rafa was playing in uh, in live competition and, and, again, treated very well. And I'm sure just as much as the fans miss him not being able to play there, uh, he, he is uh, equally uh, disappointed in not being able to perform as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, sort of a lot, uh, you know, a lot uh, side note to that uh the whole thing of him pulling out of Buenos Aires is, I think, it, I don't remember exactly what day it was, um, to be honest, but it, within the last couple of days, there was uh, some promotion and advertisements going on, um, you know, called the, uh, the Rafa Nadal Tour of, um, you know, of these tournaments sponsored by Mastery, which uh, I don't know if you know the, the name of that company, but they're, they're pretty well known down there. Um, okay. And so, yeah, just it happened to kind of pop up out of nowhere where they were, he was promoting it. They had actually made, you know, kind of came up with this promotion as a tour, and they had this company involved in the, you know, the sponsorship. They, and then, like, you know, today or, you know, all of a sudden a couple of days later, and he's pulling out. So that was kind of interesting, you know, as well. Yeah, very, very unfortunate. Uh, you know, we, they – the Argentines just had the uh, the Davis Cup tie in which they lost to Italy uh, again. Del Potro was uh, not able to play due to, uh, as we talked about in a couple of shows ago, going to the Mayo Clinic and having his wrist uh, looked at yet again. And um, you know, Mr. Davis Cup in Argentina, David Nalbandian has is retired. So a little bit of a depleted squad for for the Argentines. Um, very unfortunate for them. That was at home against Italy, uh, very difficult opponent nonetheless. Uh, they did lose 3-1, um, didn't play the fifth rubber. But, uh, boy, they go from, uh, you know, hosting a home tie and, and losing that. Uh, Fognini actually won three of those matches. And uh, they go from that, and uh, Rafael Nadal, an unfortunate no-show. So, uh, uh, boom, boom, you know, a, a punch to the – an and uppercut and a punch to the gut, and they're, they're on the mat right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. No, absolutely, without a doubt. But um, yeah, I mean, we're you know, it's um, the one thing that will be happening in a uh, well, what about uh, 36 hours from now, or maybe a bit less than that, is going to be uh, as we as we uh, touched on earlier in the previous show, is going to be the the uh, Fed Cup with uh, um, in Cleveland with uh, Italy and U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so that uh, I'm, I'm going to be. You know, to be honest, uh, from both a being a former a former coach of Canelo Georgie, um, and knowing the family quite well for three years, and then obviously kind of watching her make her debut in, in uh, Fed Cup, uh, I'm going to be interested to see what kind of crowd uh, you know crowd participation there's going to be, um, because I didn't think it was that great in uh, Petco Park 
with uh, the U.S. and Great Britain, with everything that they went to build, like, seemingly an amazing stadium within a stadium kind of a thing. And so, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting for me to kind of see what kind of crowd, you know, crowd participation there is, how much, you know, ticket sales they've done and all that, and just, you know, kind of see what kind of a match they get out of it. How about you? What are you looking for in that matchup? Well, uh, similarly, we, we uh, Alex and I touched on uh, this a little bit in the last show, the fact that uh, it is in Cleveland. Um, Good choice. Again, uh, I, I shared that, uh, you know, some remote places were chosen in Davis Cup, namely Boise, Idaho, Austin, Texas, places that don't have uh, tennis tournaments per se. You know, San Diego does have a, a women's tournament, and it's uh, not too far from Indian Wells. Cleveland, sure, they've got the uh, the Masters 1000 in Cincinnati later on in August, but um, kind of a bummer uh, for Cleveland in the sense of uh, all the uh, – nasty weather that the uh, Midwest yeah. and East Coast uh, of the United States have been through. And, you know, I think maybe um, touching on the crowd aspect, the fact that I think maybe some people that were planning on going might think otherwise right. in uh, trying to uh, drive on icy roads to get there no matter how passionate <laughs> they are. So that sure. um, that may very well cut into the uh, the attendance. I sure hope that uh, – that the you know the venue is able to do something if if that's indeed the case. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, um, I happened to tune in and listen to you and Alex uh, on the show Tuesday night, and you guys did a great job. And you know, uh, going back and forth with the information. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about when you guys were touching on the Davis Cup and Fed Cup, and we were talking about Cleveland per se, mm-hmm. was I was trying to think in my head. I couldn't remember what I was missing as far as the thought process, what is Cleveland known for in the tennis world other than the last time, you know, besides bringing it up now for Fed Cup? And I thought, oh, Cleveland's the headquarters of IMG. With uh, Godsick, correct? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, their, their headquarters is out, of, uh, is out of Cleveland, IMG's headquarters. And I was trying to, you know, trying to think, like, okay, what, what big, you know, what big, um, you know, sort of tennis-related thing was, you know, it was based in Cleveland. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. IMG is based out of Cleveland. Um, so, um, so that, you know, that's interesting. And, you know, certainly hope for the weather's good. Certainly hope there's a big, you know, big crowd support. Hope, obviously, both teams play well and there's a good match, um, mm-hmm. you know, most importantly. It's funny. I, I mentioned on the show also my dad, uh, actually, he attended one of Nick Volateri's first, uh, tennis camps oh. in, in, Anher- in Amherst, Massachusetts. But he, uh, being a big tennis fan uh, that he was, he actually, uh, being in the Detroit area, he went to Cleveland back-to-back years to uh, to watch the USA and Davis Cup. And I think they played Romania one year and I want to say West Germany another year. Uh, that would have been in the very early 70s. But, um, yep, Cleveland has hosted some Davis Cup ties before, but... Um, yeah, aside from this uh, Fed Cup tie, I'm not really sure what else they may have uh, had uh, tennis-wise. No, absolutely. That's interesting. Is your, is your dad, like, uh, is he sort of a big uh, big kind of tennis, you know, a big tennis fan or big into the game, like playing it a little bit? Or he used to be. He, he, uh, he, yeah, yeah you went to, he went to Nick Volatieri's camp uh, when, you know, nobody really knew who Nick was. Uh, you know, he subscribed to all the tennis magazines that were out there back in the day, and and he played uh he played quite a bit and so uh, I think that was either Nick's first or second camp back in the day in Amherst uh, Massachusetts that he that he went to and um 
He's more uh, he's more into golf these days, but he always accompanies me uh, to the uh, Western and Southern Open in in uh, Mason, Ohio, Cincinnati uh, every oh, year. Nice. So uh, it's a nice father son uh, trip for both of us to uh, to attend. Nice, well, that's pretty, that's yeah. pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, Pete, actually, um, with uh, you know with 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 us moving sort of uh, past Davis Cup and past Fed Cup and and slowly entering into uh, the next couple of weeks, entering uh, March, which you know, everyone is pretty well, well versed around the world, the tennis, you know, the tennis world that, uh, you know, March is pretty much uh, the time of year for Indian Wells Miami swing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know it's a bit probably premature and early to start, start uh, touching on that, but what are your, uh, what are some of your insights and thoughts as to what you look forward to seeing during that particular swing? Because it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big three week swing of the year. It is. Um, well, first off, the one thing about uh, Indian Wells, I, I've noticed uh, it's gotten a lot more corporate lately. You know, Larry Ellison has, uh, we've got uh, uh, Hawkeye shot spot on every court. Uh, obviously, you know, the majors don't even have that. And you kind of question, uh, you know, why is someone penalized on playing um, on a non-TV court and they can't exactly challenge in a major when at Indian Wells anybody can, can challenge. So, um that's interesting. They're, they've built a brand new um, court too, as well. So uh, they're they're really. It's almost like the Australian, where you know they've got Laver and High Sense, and even even at Wimbledon, obviously center court, nothing can compare to that. But uh, the number two court at Wimbledon is pretty uh, pretty formidable as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Indian Wells likes to say that they've got the best doubles tournament in the world. And that's true to a fact because uh, a lot of players are wanting to get match play in at that point in time. Um, it, it, the doubles is very, very well uh, attended by the uh, by the elderly population in, in the Palm Springs area. They they much prefer to watch doubles on some of the side courts than uh, than some of the big big names on um, on court one or court two there. But um, Right, you make some great points, Sandy. This is a very integral part of the uh, of the season. These are Masters 1000 tournaments, but um, these two are uh, 96 draw rather than um, uh, a 64 draw, actually 56 with eight buys um, in the uh, Masters 1000s. Uh, these uh, 32 people get buys in this, but it's a, it's a uh, you know, they've got the same brackets as a major 128, but there are 96 entries. So, um, very, inter- very important tennis. Uh, it's taken very seriously by the players. It's uh, it's sort of interesting though that uh, the two of the biggest hard court tournaments uh, are leading right up into the uh, beginning of the clay court season. In fact, you know Rafael Nadal and um, anyone else who's playing the uh, South American clay court season, the the 250 uh, level tournaments, and then the 500 in Acapulco. They went from the Australian Open on hard court down to South America, Latin America, playing on clay back to hardcore at Indian Wells, Miami, and then, um, you know, we've got uh, the Masters 1000 and Monte Carlo and Clay coming up after that, so interesting sort of um, uh, going back and forth, but, uh, you know, the clay court specialists will, will play on clay no matter what, but going back to it, these, you know, these are very large tournaments with very large purses. I believe Indian Wells is the... Um, fifth largest payout in tennis after the four grand slams. So everybody's there to play and win. No, yeah, absolutely. We're looking at, um, 
we're looking for a for a good year to absolutely. And guys, I hate to cut you off. You guys are on a roll. We're gonna sit up against a break here. We're still trying to get a hold of Johan. I think he's got a little bit of a hiccup in the schedule, but he'll be calling in here pretty soon. So we'll hold we'll hold on for that, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Everybody, hold on. Don't go away. New York, the toughest of the majors and impossible to predict the champion. Rafael Nadal's got to be the favorite with his Babola Aero Pro Drive GT and Nike Air Cord Ballistic 2.3s. Then there's Roger Federer with his Wilson BLX 6-1 Tour and Nike Lunar Vapor Tours. Don't count out Andy Murray. He's on a hot streak right now with his head UTech Radical Pro and Adidas Barricade 6. Well, I don't know who's going to win the Open this year, but I do know I can get all the gear the pros wear at Tennis Warehouse, the ultimate equipment website. For service you can count on, shop TennisExpress.com. Demo rackets delivered to your door, product and video reviews, tennis vacation giveaways, plus discounts on gear for your team, only at TennisExpress.com. A friend of mine said he wanted to talk to me about my Volvo. I told him, thank you, that's between me and my gynecologist. He said, no, no, your car, your Volvo 850 Turbo Sports Wagon. I said, oh, that. No, you can't drive it. Oh, I love my Volvo. Sure, it's safe, but gee, just because driving on the freeways of Southern California is the equivalent of playing bumper cars at the speed of light, what kind of reason is that? Volvos are still ultra-luxury imports, sleek and gorgeous and loaded to hear, safe and sexy and... Pardon me, I have to go hug my car now. Want safe and sexy? Viva La Volvo. Test drive a Volvo 850 at your Southern California Volvo dealer. Since when is safe sexy, another friend asked. Hey, I said, what decade are you living in? The Donne racket is solid inside. It's not a hollowed out racket at all. So when, when the ball hits the racket, it doesn't wobble. It holds firm in your hand. But because of the thin beam, it really moves through the air effortlessly and it's been no adjustment at all. It's a seamless transition for me. Looking recently for a racket with a little bigger sweet spot, a little bit more power, but I didn't want to give up the control that I need. That's what the Donne has done for me. So if you want to try out a Donne racket, go exclusively online to TennisWarehouse.com. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. Now, see, when people think of GEICO, right, they think of car insurance. And, of course, saving money. But sometimes that can lead even the savviest driver astray. Take, for example, the motorcycle owner. He calls Geico wanted to save money on his car insurance, only to realise that he doesn't actually own a car. Well, needless to say, he's quite embarrassed, isn't he? Doesn't matter. Geico insures motorcycles and ATVs as well. That way, no one ends up looking foolish. Geico. To celebrate the not-normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. 
Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper Hard Top comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper Hard Top and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit MiniUSA.com slash info for MPG details. Taking a family of five to the amusement park can cost a small fortune. Oh, yeah. So to save some money, we thought, hey, let's bring the amusement park to us. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Uh, step right up. Step right up, young man. Are you ready to ride the Wacky Waterfall? That's just the bathtub with the shower head running. Nope. It's the Wacky Waterfall. It's the shower, Dad. Waterfall. Wacky. There's an easier way to save. To get a free rate quote, go to Geico.com. Then buy online, over the phone, or at your local Geico office. Right, and welcome back. A little Van Halen there for everybody. Can't get enough of that. So welcome back. You are on the Players Lounge. Players Lounge presented by Protein International. I am Alex Ramirez, your host. And with me, Sandy Middleman and Pete Zebron. And, uh, guys, I have good news. I'm going to try and get uh, Johan Creek here on the line. So you guys are going to listen to it live here as it rings, and he picks up. See if we can get him on the line. Hello? Hello, Johan Creek. Yes, sir. You are live and on the air, sir. How are you? Sorry for the delay. I got busy with my kids. It's been a disaster at the house. Almost burned my house down with a fireplace because I put too much logs in it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know what? That's okay. Anyway. Uh, we got the show started. We got it warmed up for you. So now we'll kind of kind of do things a little bit backwards. So... Now that you're already on, I'm actually <laughs> going to introduce you once again because you um, have a lot of fans out there. But I just want to let people know, you know, Johan is a, is a two-time Australian Open champion in 1981-1982. He won uh, 14 singles titles and eight doubles titles in his career. He reached a high of number seven in the world in singles, number 12 in the world in, in doubles, and has victories over Andre Agassi, Beyond Borg, Jimmy Connor, Stefan Edberg, John McEnroe, and Guillermo Vilas. And uh, Johan actually had a little surprise for you here. He's got to climb the mountain now. 15-40. Two match points. A first serve critical. John taking plenty of time. Walking around. Resting. Trying to regain his concentration. We have seen him down a pair of break points earlier in this set. Not match points. He fought back from those. <coughs> Great recovery with the forehand down the line. And the match is history with Johan Creek breaking <laughs> in the 10th game of this third set. And McEnroe congratulating him very sportingly. He knew he was beaten. And there you go. 
Little, oh, little boy, that was a 1982 Memphis finals, yep. <laughs> wow, absolutely. You remember, yes. Bring back some good memories, huh? <laughs> well, those are those kind of matches where you, uh, they don't come along very often. And, uh, you know, I had just won my second Australian Open, and, you know, everybody was talking about, well, the top guys didn't play it. So, you know, Creek was lucky to have won, and, you know, it's all that, that stuff. But, uh, a couple of months later, I played Macker in the finals of Memphis. I mean, he was, you know, number one player in the world. So when I beat him there, I felt, you know, I've I've arrived. I've, I've basically confirmed that, you know, my, my, my second Australian Open was no fluke. I was playing some really good ball, and I won 14 matches in a row to win two of them. So, you know, just to beat him, that uh, that was actually kind of the first time that I beat him uh, in the finals of any major event. And that was a U.S. national indoors and Memphis is a little bit bigger stature than it is now. But, uh, it was, uh, it was a great moment for me. It just, uh, just confirmed to me that I was playing the best ball I've played in my life. Absolutely. A lot of people wish they had that kind of luck going into, into their career, but, um, that's awesome. Yeah. I found that, that audio clip and I thought I'd play that and bring back some memories for you. So, uh, <laughs> kind of, Dive into this and kind of take a look at your career in three stages. One, I'll talk about uh, before before you turn pro, and then during your pro career, and then a little bit what you're doing after. So, uh, can you tell us, you know, going back to to before you you were growing up in tennis, what were some of the things in your youth that made you fall in love with the sports? Well, really, my parents introduced me. You know, I didn't really speak English till I was like 17, 18 years old when I was in deep into high school and just about to graduate graduate from high school in South Africa. I came from an Afrikaner background. My parents were sugar farmers in a very small town called Pongola. It was a, uh, it was a little town in the middle of a, of a ring of uh, mountains. It was like a beautiful valley, and they grew sugar cane there and spoke Afrikaans and, uh, you know, learned to speak Zulu because we had, uh, that was in the middle of Zululand. So, you know, being in the farming community, there's a lot of uh, Zulus that work on the farm, and you get to know them. And so, my parents played tennis uh, just like every other parent in South Africa that uh, loves to go out on weekends with their kids and play either tennis or they go and play some rugby or they go and, you know, so tennis is a big social sport in South Africa back in the day. So my parents really introduced me to it. And I you know, I was a pretty tough kid to uh, to babysit. So there was not too many babysitters that took a chance with me. So I would always go with my parents to the tennis uh, facility that had only two cement courts, and that's where the sugar mill was. And uh, they ended up... Um, you know, after I banged my head in the swings and fell off a swing and stepped on thorns or whatever, they would always try and hit tennis balls with me at the end of the day. So I started when I was very young. I was probably four years old, they said, and I don't remember it. But uh, so that's kind of where I started. And, you know, when you were in South Africa as a, as a kid back in the 60s and, and early 70s, you know, rugby was the number one sport in South Africa. So tennis tennis was my hobby and rugby was my number one sport. But because I was a great athlete as a little boy, I, uh, I, I did a lot of sports in school. And uh, But tennis was always sort of a amazingly good hobby for me. I always did very well in it. And, in fact, when I played my first low-felt tournament, which was in Nelsprate, which is a town about 100 miles north for, north of us, which is really near the Kruger National Park, uh, is also the town that Cliff Drysdale was born in. And uh, I ended up winning my tournament, and I played it in the middle of winter. My grandparents took me up because my parents were farming. They couldn't leave so my grandparents took me up there and uh, my parents came on the final day but I ended up uh, living in a caravan park with my grandparents out of a collapsible little caravan and my grandmother was making porridge in the morning and she even knit me a sweater because it was so cold she knit me a sweater in a couple of hours so I, I, I won my first 10 and under tournament that way. 
Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, I was one, we were wondering, um, do you think, like, your development growing up was more focused on playing professional tennis or was more, like, to see, like, how good you could get? Was it ever in your mind when you started playing, like, hey, I'm pretty good at this, I want to try to become a professional, or is more like, let's see how good I can get, and then one day it was like, oh, I'm pretty, I'm really good at this, I can do this professionally. No, there was no, there was no aspirations at that young an age of of, uh, of playing professional tennis. You know, it's funny enough. You know, uh, what most people don't realize is the South African Open, which was played in uh, Johannesburg uh, for many, many years, starting in the very young uh, 1900s. Uh, it was the fifth oldest tournament in the world, and unfortunately this year there is no tournament in South Africa anymore, so there's no more South African Open. They had a Soweto Open before, but it sort of sputtered and died, and this year there's no tournament, there's no more weeks for the South African Open, which is a very sad situation for that country. But, uh, you know, South Africa was a, a, a rugby and sports-mad country, but, you know, like I said, uh, tennis didn't really become serious for me. I mean, that town that I grew up in was so small that I didn't have a high school, uh, so I got a scholarship to go to Pretoria, which is a very Afrikaans. Uh, it's kind of like the Washington of South Africa. It's where all the government buildings are and parliament and so forth. And uh, I ended up in uh, Afrikaans High, which is an Afrikaans boys' high school. There was 1,100 boys. I went to boarding school. It was a huge uh, change for me because, you know, running free on the farm was going to school barefoot. And now suddenly i got a, a tie and black polished shoes and all that. It was a great, uh, a great change and a, and a good um, moral booster, but also very strict. And, uh, you know, I played rugby. I did athletics. Uh, I played all kinds of sports. So there wasn't really a, a focus on me becoming a professional athlete. I was just a very good runner. I was very strong as a little boy and uh, was l- luckily blessed with some great genetics. And my dad was a great athlete. My mom was five foot eight. She was pretty tall, so, um, you know, I uh, I ended up being only 5'8 in my tennis career, but I had all these other attributes. So what happened was I went, I was invited to go and watch the South African Open, which had the likes of, like, Rod Laver and Ken Rosewall and Lou Hode and all the greats of the day, Ash, Connors. There were a lot of players that came down to South Africa because it was sort of a November and it was the last tournament that you could get a lot of points before you could make it to the Masters in New York. So it was an important tournament on the calendar. So I was invited to go and play, uh, not play, but to go and watch it. And I was 12 years old. It was in my first year at uh, in high school. And I watched uh, I watched uh, these guys play. And, man, this, the hair on my neck was standing on end and my arms. And I said, you know, that's what I want to do. That's I'm going to be there one day. And, you know, really, it was sort of an epiphany, I mean, at that moment. And so, you know, I had this coach who really took me under, under his wing. You know, I saw my parents four times a year. Uh, every semester when the school closes, I would go back to the farm, and my mom would hop in the car and drive me to tennis tournaments. My poor three siblings never really saw me. I didn't see them. It was always like a very strange situation. I always go and play tournaments with my mom, and uh, my sister and two brothers had to stay on the farm. But anyway, uh, I ended up, um, you know, getting very good at tennis, and I was very good at rugby. And uh, I one weekend I had to make a decision when I was 15 years old that I was going to play a huge rugby tournament or I was going to play a big tennis tournament. And uh, geez, I saw the French junior team that we were supposed to play in rugby, and I said, geez, these guys got full beards, man. They're not 15 years old. <laughs> and so that scared, that scared me to death, so I ended up tennis. And that's honest to God's truth. I, I, I literally had to make a fork in the road, and I picked tennis. Johan, thank, thank you for that overview. Pete Zebron here, and um, that was actually one of my questions. How old were you uh, when you decided? But I'm going to alter my question a little bit and 
when you were talking about uh, the farmlands and, and playing in that capacity, that really reminded me quite a bit of the uh, the book A Handful of Summers by Gordon Forbes. Can you can you uh, right. can you talk about how spot on that book was with respect to uh, your experience there? Oh, you know, we, I mean, those guys, I mean, Gordon Forbes played in an era worked in the 50s and 60s. I mean, what an amazing time with Abe Siegel and those famous South Africans. And, you know, just a, he's a prolific writer and a brilliant guy, very funny. And uh, literally just, just wrote the truth about the funny people on the tour. And, you know, tennis is nowhere near how it was back then. I think there was a lot more fun stuff, I, I suppose. And, and, and really, uh, just basically the love of the sport was quite different back then. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've listened to, Ro- to Rosewall and those guys talk about when they were traveling in the States and they would take a, 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 a ship from Australia to America and then they would get in a bus and they had a rolled up tennis court and they would roll these courts out in the middle of Kansas and play in like a flat spot of land. I mean, that is completely different from what we see today with, you know, minimum 15,000 seat stadiums and stuff like that. So, you know, I think tennis for me was it, the luck came first and then the professionalism came later. And I can honestly say that I have never lost my, my love for this sport. Yeah, there are times that you didn't like it very much and you hated what happened and, you know, all the politics that goes with it, especially that we were born in South Africa. That was another big whammy. Uh, and I came through the apartheid era with my friend Kevin Curran, and we never played Davis Cup. We never played the Olympics. So there's a lot of things we missed, you know. And uh, But, you know, I still have a great love for the sport. I'm very current. I stay on top of things. I see the new crop coming up, and I see the new ones pushing away. And, you know, the tournaments, how they've changed over the many decades that I've watched the game. And it's still a wonderful sport. It's a sport of a lifetime. And, uh, you know, my, my love for it has never diminished, ever. Thank you. No, Johan, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's all really interesting. And, um, you know, one of the you know one of the things that we wanted to – we were curious about – touching on with your with your junior career before we decide to move on and focus on a little bit your uh, your incredible you know professional career was what uh what junior tournaments or titles back in your junior days uh stick out in your mind as like a special memory of your junior career and like why is there something that's like stands out so to this day as like a moment let me put it this way. I was always, uh, since I was age 10, and then, you know, I was like one of the top players. And there was another kid, uh, he's now a top lawyer in, in, in Cape Town. His name was Vainant Vessel. And he was my buddy in Pongola. His parents also had a farm there. And we were like doubles partners. And I probably beat him like nine out of ten times in singles. But Vainant and I were pushing each other. And we were like the only two kids from that whole region that could play really good tennis. So we won a lot of doubles tournaments together. I won a lot of singles. He did very well. And, uh, you know, he eventually, he was a very smart kid. He was much smarter than me. <laughs> Ended up going to college and get his degree and, uh, you know, still plays tennis, but he's a very famous lawyer in Cape Town. But, um, you know, I didn't really come through the typical junior scene in the world of international junior tennis. I was a very good South African junior. Uh, I had this guy, Ian Cunningham, who was a coach in Pretoria, who took me under his wing. And, uh, you know, I kind of, as an Afrikaans kid and English, and back in those days, you know, Johannesburg was very much English-speaking, and the, the, the tennis bosses in South Africa were, were, were not too keen on the Afrikaner boys making inroads into the English sport, so to speak. So there was a definite bias back in the day, and I can, you know, lots of samples of, of that, but I ended up having to always prove myself like three times over why I was supposed to be in that team, or why would I, why was I supposed to get picked for this or that, and you know, it was like um, 
I always had to fight very hard for what I had to achieve. And in a way, uh, it put an edge on me mentally, but I also became much more driven. And, and in a way, that was a huge, uh, it was a huge plus for me. So I'm kind of glad that they tried to push me away because I had to prove myself over and over. And that's how I, uh, I became a really hard-nosed little tennis player. And, um, but anyway, my coach, Ian Cunningham, took me under his wing. And at age 15, he emigrated to Austria. And I, um, I was in high school for two more years, and I didn't, didn't really do much with my tennis. I was still a very good junior in South Africa, top three in each age group. But then at uh, 17, I decided, you know what, I really want to play tennis. Tennis is just, uh, I enjoy it so much. I love it. And I want to give it a shot. And I told my parents. And for, for some reason, they must have looked in my eyes and thought, this kid is going to hit a, jump a freighter or, or hitchhike all the way through Egypt to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> they let me go. So I ended up in Austria for three years. I completely disappeared from tennis when I was 17 years old. I didn't go through the normal junior tennis route, which is the Miami, uh, you know, the Orange Bowls, the Junior Wimbledons, yeah. any of that. Yeah. And at age 19, I thought, you know, and by the way, I my parents were not rich. And I ended up in Austria. Within three months, I had a job. I was coaching under the table for cash. And I helped support my, uh, my living situation. Yeah. And I, I, I was paying for my own airfares. But I took a lot of trains to Switzerland and Germany, and I even took trains to England. And I played all the satellites in Austria and Germany and Switzerland, and that's how I kind of kept going. I, I supported myself at a very young age. And, you know, so I know what it takes for these young guys nowadays with all the struggles they have on the Futures Tours and the Challenger Tours. I know all about that because I went through it. Very similar yeah. situation. And uh, so yeah. for me, um, you know, uh, it was uh, it, it was always... You know, from uh, from my from my hand to my mouth, that was how I played tennis. And um, you know, when I came to the states, finally I decided, you know, I'm ready to kind of see what I can do in the United States. I was ranked like 800 in the world, 700 or something like that when I arrived in the United States. Maybe I was like 600. I can't remember exactly. But you know, I was here supposed to be here only for five weeks. I came in third in that whole circuit, and I said, well, maybe I'll stick around. I made some money. I'll play the next circuit. And then I played the, the satellites in the South North Carolina area during February, March, April. Boom, I came in second, made some points. Hey, I can stay on. And I, you know, and that's the long story of it. I uh, ended up in the United States, never went back to Austria. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. You know, uh, and this is a perfect segue. We were going to switch gears into your professional career. And, and one of the questions we had was, if you could show with us some of the experiences you had going through the grind of trying to make it starting off playing the satellites and challengers back in the day? Well, I tell you what. I I played the satellites, and I told my dad after I was – well, by the way, I played the whole satellites, and then I went – and they used to have uh, a, a tournaments called American Express tournaments. They were $25,000 futures events. And uh, so I, I qualified for three of those. I won two of them, and I think I lost in the finals of the third. So I got points accumulating very rapidly and then i got into my first direct tournament was like new hampshire on red play in uh, north conway i got killed in the first round by i think mark orantes uh, and then i played in stowe vermont i lost in the first round to tom uh, tim gullickson at that time man i those guys spanked me and i'm like geez these guys are super good i better get my act together and then i went to the u.s open i qualified four rounds and i got to the quarterfinals i beat brian teacher i beat sandy mayer beat a couple of seated players and then I got to the quarterfinals as a 19 year old and that was the beginning of the big story for me so never had to look back and playing qualifying you know ever again 
And I didn't play qualifying until 16 years later. I qualified for Wimbledon for the second time. I was 34 years old and, uh, and, and got into Wimbledon. But I had three surgeries and my elbow was off for three years. But anyway, long story on that. But um, really, I... Um, you know that I I went through the grind. I mean, I did not get qualified. I didn't get wild cards. I didn't get freebies, uh, free pass right. to get into the pro league. I literally earned everything that I did at that time. And you know, it's it's a it's a very different tour today. It's it's very 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 hard for the guys. It's a lot more expensive. And I'm uh, I, I I told my dad when I even back then in 1978 when I first played the satellite in, in the United States. I said to my dad, listen. If I have to play these satellites another year, I'll come back home and farm because it's twice as hard uh, that I thought it was going to be. And uh, I think it's even harder today. There's so many good players out there. And unfortunately, it almost seems like at this point in time, a lot of these very, very good athletes are going to forego tennis because it's so expensive to make it. And it costs way over $100,000 a year just to be out there to try and make it to the top 100. Absolutely. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, you know, John, as we uh, you know, as we as we you know, brush upon your your pro career, and this is all you know, great stuff, and it's very interesting to to hear all about your sort of growth from the you know, become you know, a kid playing and where you grew up, and then obviously going through the grind, like you said, not getting any wild cards and you know, free passes. Um, we were wondering, was there like one win in your career professionally that? you felt like made the biggest difference that stands out to you that like nobody really talked about or wrote about, like you didn't get a lot of press for it, but it meant a lot to you? Um, there's a couple of them. I think, uh, you know, in the beginning, uh, when I first qualified for the U.S. Open, I got to the quarterfinals, and I remember walking into Louis Armstrong Stadium behind Vitas Gerolaitis, who was the darling of New York at that time with McEnroe, and, you know, he was very best buddies with Borg, and, you know, I walk into the stadium and I was looking and I was looking at this guy who is about four inches taller than me, six inches taller than me, and you know his ankles are creaking and he's got this like really cocky walk and he's walking into New York and I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? And uh, <laughs> the guy beat me in the quarters of '78. He beat me in the quarters of the U.S. Open in '79, and then I played him again in Milan, Italy, and I said to myself, if this guy is going to beat me again, I'm going to, I'm going to something is going to give. And so I said to myself, I'm not going to care about the score. I don't care if this guy beats me 0-0, but he's not going to beat me to the net again. And uh, I beat him like 2-3 and three or something. I beat him pretty easily, and I never lost him after that. And so it was kind of a breakthrough thing for me mentally. Nobody knows. But it was a second, a first or second round match in Milan, Italy. That tournament doesn't even exist anymore. And uh, for me, it was just such a huge learning experience to be third year on a tour I'm really starting to cut my teeth on this thing, and I and I, and I I had to overcome somebody that was beating me constantly, and I I didn't like it, and I felt I got to do something different, and I didn't care one iota about the score. I just said I'm going to just focus on the process of how to get past this guy, and the score will take care of itself. And I taught myself that lesson. Nobody, there was no coach with me, no nothing at that time. I was basically all by myself most of my tennis career. I didn't have a coach like I have today, and you have to figure things out yourself basically, and so. That was one, right. and the second biggest win for me probably was in my first Australian Open. I mean, I played Steve Denton. I mean, this guy had a monster serve. He had sort of a galloping first serve, kind of wind himself up that way, and he had a huge serve. In fact, the guy, never, I think, never lost to McEnroe. He played him like three or four times. So um, so I didn't know how to play the guy, but, I mean, I was. Uh, I just said I'm just going to stick to my, my quick reflexes and try and get as many balls back on his feet as I can when he serves, and, 
ended up beating him in very tough four sets the first year, and then I beat him again in the second year in the Australian, and I beat him in three sets. I was a much better player then, much smarter. But, uh, you know, the, I, I would say in New York, uh, probably the most amazing match that I ever probably played at the U.S. Open was uh, I, I beat Roscoe Tanner in the, in, 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 the, in the fourth round, I think, of uh, 1984 U.S. Open or 85. I don't know exactly which year it was, but I, he had eight match points on me, and I beat him. And that wow. showed me that, you know, if you you just never, never know. You never give up, and you just keep going, and you keep going. And it's so funny, many years later, somebody sent me a, an article that was written in the New York Times, not even on the sports section. It was written in the editorial page about amazing sporting sporting events that this guy that was a writer for the New York Times was had attended. And he said, you know, I've watched a lot of matches in my life. He said, but there's one match that nobody really talks about, but that I thought was the most draining mental match I've ever seen in my life was Johan Krieg against Oscar Tanner. And he tells the whole story about <laughs> wow. the seesawness of the match. So it was kind of cool. That's awesome. Johan, I was uh, wondering who um, who your toughest opponent was. I know you had some difficulties against Lendl, and you had a real heartbreak against Borg in the uh, semis in the U.S. Open in 1980, but um, who, who is the toughest opponent you had to play and, and why? Well, you know, there are opponents that are mentally very taxing on you. Not that they aren't all taxing mentally, but there are certain people that just uh, – would you know would would test you in so many ways. McEnroe was not only an amazingly talented tennis player with his you know with his phenomenal hands at the net and the way he served and the way he stood and you know his whole character the way he you know the way he drove his own tennis matches he was an he was an absolute total control freak on a tennis court with regards to everything and <laughs> that in itself is a very taxing way to try and play somebody. And he beat me a couple of times. In fact, you know what's a funny story? McEnroe, the first the first ATP tournament McEnroe won, he beat me in the finals of Hartford, Connecticut, 1978. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and he's the same age as I am. And obviously he just had a meteoric rise. And then I kind of caught up to the top ten a few years later. But, yeah, he was a very taxing player in many ways because he was such a control freak. You know, you could see how he acted with the umpires, the ball boys. He wanted everything to go his way, and he was very tough to play because he would switch gears on you all the time and trying to throw you off, and you had to deal with that. And then, you know, he would serve, you would beat him, and then suddenly he would fight with the umpire about calls and the lines, buns and whatever, and then suddenly he comes back to those three aces, you know, and stuff like that. He was absolutely, he was absolutely the most brilliant guy that can switch his computer off and make you feel like. Stand there, buddy, and watch me act on this out, and then I'm going to thump you when I come back. Just give me a few minutes to fight the umpire. <laughs> he was brilliant at that. I don't think there's anybody in tennis today that could even do that. I mean, Nastasi was like that, but Nastasi derailed himself a lot. McEnroe never really derailed himself, which is amazing. And, uh, you know, then there's Connors, who was more of a baseline player and sort of a similar character to McEnroe, very petulant. I was kind of petulant on the courts, too. A lot. I mean, I got into some serious trouble sometimes with the umpires, too. But, you know, I just had a hard edge to myself. I was a very nice kid off the court. But when I stepped on that court, it was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, man. Mr. Hyde came out a lot. <laughs> hey, hey, Johan, on that note, we're curious. Um, you know, through all of your years playing, when, when somebody knew they were playing Johan Creek next round, what was, like, the one or two things that they feared the most about having to step on the court against you? Like, what was your thing? 
I was to a certain degree in the beginning of my career. I had very high highs and I had very low lows. And so I learned, I didn't have, you know, I wish I had a coach of my stature now, like a, at that time that had, that had the, 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 the understanding of the pro tour. I, I really didn't have that information fed to me and talked to me about enough when I was a young upcoming star, you know. I mean, my coach Ian Cunningham was a great guy, but he didn't travel with me. Uh, we sort of split up after 1978 because I was I was in America, he was in Europe. So I kind of, you know, I kind of learned everything by the seat of my pants. So the fact is when players saw me play, they knew that I had a lot of talent. And when I was on, I was beating the best in the world. When I wasn't on, I could lose 200 in the world. And that was the problem with me mentally because I didn't really have good coaching mentally at that time. I know so much more. I wish I was 18 again with his brain because I think I would be probably number one in the world. But uh, I wish uh, I wish I had a lot more uh, instructional coaching on the mental side. We didn't have much of that back then. Sure, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> now, so so we're gonna we're gonna switch gears here, Johan, and talk about uh, now that you're you, you retired and now you're coaching. Uh, as you began your coaching career, how did did your career as a player impact your coaching style, if at all? Well, <clears throat> obviously, I mean, most, I would say that there's very few guys that played at a very high level that love the coaching uh, profession because it's quite a different profession than it is to play professional tennis. Um, Absolutely. I can only say that because I started to coach and had to work and earn money as a 19-year-old, all of those things that I learned back then still has many of it. Many of those issues are still very pertinent today. You know, you find a kid that is uh, that is absolutely driven, that doesn't have a lot, that has the hunger, and is willing to put in the extra mile, and will always overdo when you ask him. Those are the those are the special kind of talents that you want to work with. I don't care if a kid has has somewhat good talent in tennis, but if they have that in, inner want and desire and hunger everything it takes to go the, the extra mile for them in tennis and for the coach, those are the, those are the gems that you like to find. And, uh, you know, when I started coaching at age 19, I didn't know much about the coaching profession. I was just kind of mimicking what my coach Cunningham did and a couple of guys in his club, they, you know, he hired a bunch of coaches because they had a big program. And I would just take tidbits of everybody. And then I sort of became a student of the game as I became a professional player. I only obviously learned a lot on the tour about different personalities, you know, McEnroe, Lendl, you know, Borg, who's never said boo and never got mad on the court ever, which was so strange and so amazing and was so phenomenal. And that's why that era was so rich because you had this crazies on the one side and you had the stoic Swedish guy on the one side. And, you know, so I, I learned a lot and I, I, I was always a student of the game. And now that I'm coaching and my, my passion of the tennis is to impart this knowledge on my kids. And I take ordinary kids that I find in the city where I am now in Charlotte and we make them really, really good over a couple of years. And I've only been here two years, but we have some, you know, number ones in the 12s and number threes in the 14s and that kind of stuff. And these kids are going to be complete players when I'm done with them because they'll know how to attack. They will know how to deal with pressure. They will know how to deal with all the momentum swing. Uh, a lot of the things that I never really got taught when I was a young professional, because I was sort of by myself, I'm trying to impart on these kids. So, you know, I see the fruits of my labor. And, and tennis is a long-term journey. It's not a one-year deal. If sure. you want to deal with a kid that's talented, it takes many years. I think it takes between right. six and ten years to build a good tennis player. 
No, absolutely. Um, one of the things, no, it's interesting because, you know, obviously not everybody starts starts an academy after have, you know, have spent years being at the level you were at. So we're always kind of curious to know, uh, is your mindset going into starting the academy? Because obviously it's a business, right? You know what I mean? You're, you're starting the academy, you're, you're making money, you're obviously bringing kids in, and at the same time you're hopefully, um, you're hopefully filling course and hopefully building players. So you're right. um, it's, always, it's always interesting to hear sort of the, the difference between focusing on the development and how your tennis career as a you know, top player impacted you as a coach, and then there's the whole business aspect. But um, how do, just curious, how do you see the game now from both a fan's point of view, a former top player, and also a coach's point of view? Does, do you see it differently from those perspectives? Absolutely. Every, every, every angle that you just talked about, which I assume is the three angles as a, as a, as a former pro, because, you know, yeah. as a former pro, you know, Rod Laver walks into that stadium, you know, in Australia, and he is still a pro. He still sees the game through that person running on that court. He knows when the guy hits the ball, what is the most likely reaction going to be. An ordinary fan doesn't look at tennis that way. And sure. so from an old professional like myself, looking at the game today, it has changed quite a bit. I think that the serve and volley game is probably more opportunistic now than it ever was and uh, you know there was a time period where there was just boom boom from the baseline and then Wimbledon was maybe too fast and you have the Federer I mean the, the Sampras uh, uh, Ivanisevic uh, era where it was just one serve and it was over and people got bored with it so they made the grass much slower I mean tennis has changed in so so many ways and you know we as pros we are very much in the know about how things have changed and the ordinary fan would probably not know much about it unless you really really pay attention and you're fanatic about it but, um, you know, tennis has changed a lot over the years. And now we have, you know, women and men play together more often at tournaments. Back in the day, I only saw Chris Evans and Martina Navratilova four times a year at the major Grand Slams. And the rest of the time, they played right. their own tour. Today, it's very sure. different. Uh, most of the joint WTA ATP tournaments are very successful. And I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, the racket technology has changed dramatically. I mean, I would say I was very probably one of the few guys that is very fortunate to have played with with basically four distinct types of technologies in tennis, the rackets. I started with wood. I ended up playing with an aluminum racket uh, when I first started my pro tour. Then I went to plastics and aluminum sort of hybrid stuff. And then, uh, then they came up with the graphites in 84. And then, you know... Becker came in in 85, and, you know, the last guys was maybe Jimmy Arias and, and, and uh, Kevin Curran to play with uh, Jack Kramer wood rackets in 85. So we played with four distinct types of type, types of tennis rackets, and don't even talk about all the different types of strings that you find now. I mean, the hybrids, <laughs> the Luxalons. The, I mean, I don't even know what's out there. It's so bizarre. It's so many different things. So tennis has changed a lot. Um, you know, tennis is extremely vibrant. I think it's an unbelievable global sport, especially on the men's side. But, uh, you know, um, it, it, to me, it's just still, still very fascinating to see all the different styles. I mean, Federer is kind of old style, but, you know, he plays a new, right. a new style tennis with his, uh, with his incredible uh, hand-eye coordination and all the fancy stuff that he did in the past, and he's won more Grand Slams than everybody. But I think Nadal probably could pass him if he stays healthy. So you have all these yeah. contrasting styles, which even though the guys do play a lot more from the baseline, there's still that distinctive differences, and that's what's so cool about the sport of tennis. 
I'm curious, you know, that's the, the, a really interesting perspective on all the, you know, the, the changes and adaptations in the game. When you, like, when you sit now and watch, like, you know, the tournament, like if you watch, you know, the Aussie Open, um, where do you see the game? Do you try to imagine what the game might be in five years? Like, what do you think? You know, I think technology is... Uh, I think tennis had a, had a chance way back in the early 80s to make rules that the uh, rackets will only be X and maybe it was supposed right. to only be wood. Uh, but, you know, then uh, Howard Head came out with a big, big fat racket and, you know, that changed it because it made an average player much better because the sweet spot was so much bigger. From then, from then on, I think tennis had, a, had lost an opportunity to standardize the rackets in, in a sense. I think tennis would be very, very different today if we were only allowed to play with wood, and that's probably just something that the pundits will argue till kingdom come. But uh, you know, we are where we are now. Technology is leaping and leapfrogging forward. I think that uh, you know the the rackets are going to become so technology infused that it would right. be incredibly interesting to know where tennis will be, say, 10, 15 years, 20 years from now, because. They're already implanting in Babolat rackets uh, RFID chips so that you can see how many, you know, how many forehands you hit, how many backhands. So you can have your coach sit next to the court with a laptop and, and, and basically check out right. the performance of my, of my athlete. <laughs> it's cool as hell. Um, so, I think, so I think all of these things are going to come along. I think string technology is going to get even more outrageous. Uh, who knows what is coming down the pike with these uh, fancy scientists and stuff. But... Uh, you know, I'm still going to love my tennis. You know, I, I think tennis has become a big man sport. I mean, you don't see people my height playing very good tennis anymore. That's the sad right. part of the sport is that, uh, you know, I walk, into year, I walk into Wimbledon every year and I walk into the locker room and every year I feel like I'm either shrinking or they're getting taller. <laughs> and these guys are all ducking their heads, going into all the, all the doors and all the restaurants. They're all ducking their heads. I'm like... The average, the average height of a junior now is six foot four. I mean, it's insane how big these guys are, and they move well. And they, so tennis, in my right. opinion, the strong, super strong athletes. The taller you are, the more advantage you have on your serve. God forbid you even right. a lefty; it's even bigger. Uh, so you know, I just think that uh, you know tennis is going to maintain the, the status quo. That you know the little guy is going to have to fight amazingly hard to even get anywhere near the top ten, and that's why I think that David Ferrer is such an anomaly for at five right. eight to be number three in the world. Yeah, he's you know snuck through a few times when the other players were injured, but you know what? This guy is one tough cookie, and he's five foot eight, and he fights hard, and he plays from the baseline, and uh, you know he puts an ears on a lot of these top guys. So I mean. More kudos to him. So, but I still think that tennis is going to become. Look at the girls now. I mean, they're all six foot plus, and hit the ball like a ton of bricks. And uh, it's just a, it's it's a very fast paced sport. It's extremely yeah. task tax, taxing physically now, and you'll probably see a lot more injuries in the in the future unless there's some rule changes yeah. or something happens. Absolutely, absolutely. So on that note, Johan, you see a lot of uh, <clears throat> these players now, top players. Uh, Asking coaches uh, to coach them, you got uh, Edberg and Federer, Djokovic and Becker. Uh, is this something you would consider if if you were asked, or have you been asked to to help anybody on the tour? You know, I I was asked in 2009 to work with uh, Djokovic. At the time, he was still number three in the world. He was behind Federer and Nadal, and he was playing at the U.S. Open. I had just returned from the U.S. Open. I had never met the Djokovic parents, nobody, and so. 
somehow a friend of theirs had gotten hold of my card when I was in Sarasota in 2009. And uh, they called me uh, during the Wednesday of the second week of the U.S. Open. They begged me to fly up, so I flew up. I met with the parents clandestinely. But, uh, you know, at that time, I was the timing was off. I was just starting my big business in my academy, and I was time the, 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 the Djokovic's were also in a different place mentally between the parents and, and the son. And uh, it just didn't work out at that time. So um, it, was, it was unfortunate, and that's, when, uh, that's actually when uh, Todd Martin – uh, filled that void when I when I couldn't do it. So, and he stayed he stayed only for a few months and so forth. But you know, it's a, it's a, it's something that I really entertain. It's, a, it's I would love to throw my hat in the ring. It's so funny how all these top guys now are asking coaches of my era to help them, and I wonder why. And I think it's because we have such a rich understanding of the the the, the attacking style of play. I mean, if you look at uh, Becker, if you look at Edberg. Uh, myself included, uh, McEnroe, you know. I mean, all these guys of my era were really extremely good at uh, moving forward into the court and recognizing how to shorten a point. Whereas today's players, even Federer to a large extent, has never been taught how to do that. And so, you know, Federer is 32 years old. He's probably got a few years left, but uh, still wants to make some noise. Nadal, you know, he's, he's looking to shorten points because his knees are not going to hold up forever. Djokovic has lost a little bit of zip since 2011 and wants to get back up there, not that losing from number one to number three is that big of a zip loss. But, uh, you know, I think everybody realizes that maybe they can learn from guys like us that played the, the attacking style tennis to a large degree and had great success. So I think the guys are looking maybe for some inspiration on how to shorten things and maybe they can pick up some tips. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, Wimbledon, uh, Johan, that you were there last year, and uh, you know you you go to to that major. I was wondering, um, as a as a fan, if you will, uh, obviously uh, returning to some Grand Slams, but are, are you able to watch any uh, any? Do you attend any other tournaments in person? Obviously, you play some legends, but uh, to watch matches uh, when you're there as a fan, that's one part of it. Uh, if so, where and. Uh, are there any particular players that you encourage uh, the, the the players in your academy uh, that you coach to to really watch maybe more so than others um, with respect to their their form and their effort and their their heart and determination? Well, absolutely. I mean, I I get invited to Wimbledon. The only reason I play Wimbledon is because I get invited to play in the senior 45 and over doubles with Kevin Kern, and we won it luckily four years in a row from 2003 to 2007. And we got to a couple of semis since then, but uh, you know, it's just it, Wimbledon is just the big daddy of them all. I mean, I, you know, the Australian Open is probably the most popular uh, in terms of fan friendly and all that good stuff. And then you know, but Wimbledon has just got so much tradition. It's so British. It's so typical tennis. And uh, you know, so we get invited. It's a pity that we don't have that kind of situation with the U.S. Open anymore. We used to have it, but they dropped the ball on that one big time. Australian Open has got a small senior thing going, but it's not a big deal. But Wimbledon really, truly rolls out the red carpet for us older guys. And, you know, there's parties and there's, like, uh, you know, big photo ops and there's, like, all kinds of things to be done. So it, it's a great privilege and an honor for us to still be invited to go and play there. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, because I reached the last uh, eight in every major, I get, uh, I get for life, I get last eight club tickets. So I can get with my wife into any of the four majors because I reached the quarters or better of every one of them. So we can go to any one of them and, and, and go and watch. But Wimbledon is, is, is spectacular. I mean, the, the, the new center court and the court one is so big and it's beautiful. 
So I go and watch a lot of the center court matches because they always put like, you know, these uh, really high, high, uh, high attention matches on those courts. But you know, I actually prefer to go and watch the qualifying and watching the first rounds. But it's also fun to watch the latter rounds for the big tournaments. But the, in terms of watching people, I mean, I, I, I use I use any of the top guys or any of the top girls. Uh, you know, everyone is a little bit different. I mean, Serena Williams absolutely bludgeons the ball and bludgeons every opponent into oblivion because she's so strong. And anybody that can get her service back, then she looks kind of average when she's not really, she's not as fleet-footed as people think. And you can see how she stumbles around sometimes. So I, I use a lot of good and some bad issues with with the, with the players for kids to watch. And, uh, you know, I'm just such a student of the game now. I look at tennis very differently. I analyze a heck of a lot more and I criticize, I guess, a lot more. Uh, than I used to just watch and have fun with it, but uh, it, it's just uh, it's just great to see you know all the great things and all the great matches that has happened in the last number of years between Federer and Nadal, and then you know the switching around between them and how Djokovic came out from 2011 and won all those tournaments and just an amazing run in 2011 that he's done. Nobody's ever done that. I think he won 11 tournaments. Uh, you know, just uh, just amazing the fitness level that has gone up, uh, the movement level. And, uh, you know, there's just so much to still be learned from the game. Absolutely. Yep, thank you. you know, Johan, we, <clears throat> we put it out there to the fans to uh, send us some questions. We receive a lot of questions, and one lucky guy gets to ask a question. His name is Gary Marshall. And from Gary Marshall, the question is, says, could you ask Johan what he thinks has happened to American tennis? Why don't we have as many players in the top 100 since you played is it the USDA approach to many other sports options for kids, or is the U.S. getting too soft? You know, it's a, it's a loaded question, and uh, I can only say that, you know, let's look at the world of tennis from where it was uh, from the 60s, the 50s and the 60s to the 70s and the 80s where America absolutely ruled until probably maybe the mid-90s. And from the mid-90s, what has happened to the world of professional tennis? I'm not talking just regular tennis, but professional tennis. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, I mean, the two countries that absolutely dominated tennis was Australia, which was a very small nation back then. Still small, but even smaller back then. And America. And so, you know, the, the tennis was a big, big sport in both those countries. And then, you know, the rest of the world is sort of caught up over the decade. And, uh, you know, why is it that Sweden had so many dominant players back in the late 70s, early 80s, and into the 90s with uh, Borg, Wielander, Edberg, a couple of other guys, Norman, uh, Magnus Norman and all, you know, Stefan Johansson and all those guys. I mean, they, they all came through and then suddenly Sweden also stopped producing major players lately. I mean, uh, you know, they had Soderling there for a while, and but, you know, that, that country has also sort of gone away. America has to a certain degree gone away. Uh, Australia has gone away. Uh, we see a couple of bright spots in the Australian, but these, who are those kids? They are all kids from immigrants, which is quite interesting to me because I think that there's, in certain cultures, there's a, there's, you know, why were there so many Russian women? I mean, they just absolutely wanted it. I mean, for them, it was almost like a life and death situation. And uh, so I think there's a lot of reasons. It doesn't necessarily mean that because you threw a lot of money into the pie and you, you, you got all these training centers and you got all this training going on for these juniors that that is going to produce the number one player in the world. You know, talent can come from anywhere. I mean, 
Why the heck did I get to number seven in the world from a small town of 500 farmers in South Africa to the center courts of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and Australian Opens where I played some of the biggest matches and stuff? And, you know, why is it? Talent can come from anywhere. So nobody has a lock on talent. But I can tell you what, if somebody has more desire and it's almost a life and death situation and the hunger is there, they will probably pass you if you sit on the sideline and just sipping wine and, and having a, a cheese cracker thinking that's going to help you. So uh, I just think hunger is a huge part of it. Maybe, maybe Americans, we are to a certain degree a little bit more spoiled because we can get so much so quickly and we are a, a nation of instant gratification and tennis is not an instant gratification sport. And uh, tennis, unfortunately, has become not the major sport that it used to be in America. I think there's a lot of other sports that take precedence. And, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. But I think that America has a lot of talent. It'll swing around again. It's too big a country. But look at Serbia. Look at Croatia. How many players have they brought? Czechoslovakia with Navratilova and Lendl. And, you know, now you've got Burdic again. Uh, you know, even South Africa. We used to have a lot of South Africans in the top few in the world, the top 100. We have one or two now, I think between Kevin Anderson and a couple other guys, maybe three or so, but I'm not sure. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's always an ebb and flow in talent where they come from. But I tell you, I think in the next 15 to 25 years, most of the top players will come out of China or, or in Southeast Asia. Wow. Very good. Very good. So we're coming up against the clock here, but we have one more question, and that is uh, what one tip would you give the tennis parents out there of competitive juniors with the aspirations to achieve a professional career? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. How long do you want to sit on that subject? I mean, oh, boy, that is a <laughs> tough one. You know, look, I, I just think that, um, you know, if you talk to a kid that is showing talent and he's age 10, and, you know, I, I just think that to chase a ranking at age 10 is ludicrous, in my opinion. There's too much emphasis on chasing rankings at a very young age, 10s and 12s, when in fact these kids need to learn how to hit a tennis ball the proper way, completely build a solid surround game that can, you know, you can decide you want to play from the baseline, that's fine, power, power, but then if you see that opportunity that you can come to the net and finish it off early, you've got to have a decent serve. If you don't have a good serve today in tennis, you are not going to make it. Um, if the desire is there, let a kid be a kid first, uh, you know, Unfortunately, there's so many things that I disagree with how the system is set up in American tennis, and then there's also the international system uh, of the futures and the challengers that is just pathetic. I mean, how can you have how can you have the, the Grand Slam tournaments pay so much money every year? It goes up, it goes up, it goes up. I mean, there's staggering amounts of money in the Grand Slams, and yet we have not seen any increases in prize money at the future and challenger level in 30 years. Right. There is no way that the – I call them the incubation t t tour, uh, challenges and futures, and basically the futures are sponsored by the ITFs, right? And they're making fortunes right. out of these Grand Slams. They need to pay more attention, and I, I blame the ATP as well, and, the, and the, the big bosses in tennis, that they need to pay attention because at the end of the day, it seems like in the next – you know, at, at least in the, in, the, in the Western world, in the Western cultures, is that the kid with the most money with the least talent is going to probably make it on a pro tour. And that, to me, is a, is a travesty. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're actually going to do a show on that, uh, on that topic itself. There's a couple of stories out there on that, and we're going to touch on that and, and hopefully bring light to that. So 
Johan, with that, we want to thank you so much for, for taking the time out today and, and, and being on the show. And uh, we want to let everybody know uh, you can reach Johan at the uh, academy. is johantennisacademy.com. Do I have that right, Johan? It's, yeah, we are here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We are signing up for the summer camps and stuff. We have a lot of Europeans coming. I got Russians training here, Polish, Germans, South Africans. I got them all coming. But uh, yeah, you can reach us at uh, com and uh, they can look at, they can Google my name on the web. They'll find our website anyway. But uh, yeah, I, I have a small academy here. We do a lot of good things for kids from all over the place. Uh, I'm sending off a couple. The Polish and the Russian are leaving tomorrow to go play some futures. And uh, you know, we're just having fun with it. Like I said, I. Uh, it's great to have a top-name player right off, you know, a feather in your cap, but uh, at the end of the day, it's the long-term work that you do to put kids through in college. It's not just about the pro tour. Uh, we put a lot of kids through college, Division One, Two, II, and Three, and, uh, you know, we, we, we do as good a job for those kids that want to go to college as we do a kid that wants to go to the pro tour. Same thing. takes no different, well. no different attitude, and then you've got to work them all very hard to make it. And, um, yeah, I look forward to... To, to, to do some more stuff for you guys in the future. That's been a great pleasure. And I apologize for being late. I almost burned my house down. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. I my so fireplace. It's so, cold in, it's so cold in Charlotte. I almost burned my house down stoking that fire. <laughs> but anyway. The snow would have cooled it off a little bit. But thank you so much. We wish you the best of luck with your academy. You can follow him at Johan Creek on Twitter. And uh, for Sandy Middleman, Pete Devon, and Alex Ramirez, we're signing off. Everybody have a good night.